How to play episode 5, Tigris and Euphrates. Welcome to the How to Play podcast. This again is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from western New York. If you haven't listened to the podcast before, this podcast is about learning and teaching games. In this podcast, I'll give an explanation of how to play this game, like you're across the table from me and we're about to play the game together. You could use it to learn the game yourself, learn it as a group, or learn how to teach a game. If you like it, you can get other episodes by visiting my website, howtoplaypodcast.com, or by subscribing on iTunes. You can search my name, uh, or there is a link there from the website. It will be helpful to have your rule book and the game components out in front of you during this explanation. You may want to set up examples or refer to illustrated examples from the rule book uh, during the explanation. Today, by popular demand, I will be covering the game Tigris and Euphrates. There's a huge response. Thousands upon millions of people voted in this poll, and having tabulated all the votes, um, the most popular answer was Tigris and Euphrates. So you don't want to miss out. Join up in the guild there at BoardGameGeek and vote in the next poll if you would like to have a voice in what the next episode will be. You also are voting with your downloads. I pay attention to how popular the different episodes are, and I'm noticing that Agricola is the most popular show, followed by Age of Steam, uh, which makes sense because these games are pretty tricky and hard to learn. And I'm very happy to do heavy games, as those are some of my favorites, uh, and definitely harder to teach. Let me tell you, you picked a real doozy this time. Tigris and Euphrates is a perfect game for this podcast to cover because the rule book reads like it's in Chinese and it's a game you really should learn from someone who knows the game well. If you have all new players, the first few games of this could be very frustrating. Complexity rating. This game is another double black diamond. Not so much for the rules, but just because of the strategy for the game, knowing why to do different things and how to get those points you're trying to get can be very challenging. I will compare this to chess a few times throughout the episode. Um, one of the reasons why is because in chess I could teach you how all those pieces move in just a few minutes. But to have any sort of strategy to chess, you need to have played it several times. And this game is the same way. The basic choices you have on a turn are very simple. But why you want to do any of those choices takes a lot of seeing what happens in the game. And then practice to figure out if making a particular move will actually help you or hurt you. So I'm adding another short segment to this podcast, and that's simply called Who Is It For? Meaning, who would enjoy this game? Tigris and Euphrates, th this game is for people who like heavy strategy games. It's also for people who don't mind if the game is more abstract than really thematic. Uh, this is not really going to feel like developing ancient civilizations. It's really, at its core, a heavy abstract strategy game. There's also a lot of conflict going on in this game, a lot of back and forth. And if you have people who don't like that, it may not be for them. This game also has a large learning curve. So if 
you have people who that appeals to, that they like getting good at games and playing them over and over again, then this is definitely going to be a winner. If you have people who like to play a new game every week and this isn't going to see the table much more than once, and once or twice, stay away from this one. This is not a game for casual gamers, non-gamers, or people who like lots of theme in their game, or like to just play for fun. It's kind of a serious game, and a player playing just randomly and not really thinking about their actions can really mess up this game. In short, this is a gamer's game in the truest sense of the words. Don't Please don't make your grandma or uncle or seven-year-old child play this game. It will not be a good experience. So I'm glad you did choose this game, and here's why. This game is a great example of using the theme of the game to teach mechanics. As I said, you really will not feel any sense of building a civilization in this game, even though this is the theme of the game. However, when you're learning the game, the theme can be a very useful tool in helping your players understand and remember the rules. You may notice the vocabulary I use, and this is very important. Instead of black peace or black leader, I use the term black king. Instead of the term internal conflict and external conflict, I'm going to use the terms revolution and war. This vocabulary, I think, makes the game much more approachable and easier to learn. I have to give a lot of credit to a user there at BoardGameGeek whose name is Joe Grundy. M many years ago, several years ago, he wrote a forum post about how to teach Tigris and Euphrates, and there was a lot of great contributions, and they really developed a cohesive set of advice for teaching this game. And I'm going to use a lot of that advice from Joe's forum article, and he also uh, summed it all up into a document that is available from the file section at BoardGameGeek. I definitely recommend you go check that out. I will put in a link there from the How to Play Guild so that you can go read those. And I really have to say that reading that article a few years back really got me interested in teaching games and thinking about how we teach games and how it's like how I teach lessons in the classroom. And that probably led me into writing that initial article and eventually creating this podcast. So thank you so much, Joe, for your inspiration and for your help in the creation of this episode. So a last note here. I want you to be aware that the terms revolution and war are not in the rule book. I'm using them to replace the terms internal conflict and external conflict because I think these terms, revolution and war, are more intuitive. So whenever something is referred to as an internal conflict in the rule book, that's what I'm calling a revolution. And an external conflict, I'm going to be referring to as a war. And finally, a warning. Beware, there are a lot of silly voices in this episode. I've been watching a little bit too much Monty Python recently, and I'm afraid it's had its influence. You have been warned. All right, enough chit-chat. Let's get to the hook. Part one, the hook. What this game is about. Welcome to the Fertile Crescent at the dawn of civilization. You are a powerful family in Mesopotamia, looking to stamp your mark on history by leading the people in the development of new civilizations. 
<coughs> Throughout the game, your leaders will earn you points by advancing people in four categories. Settlement, religion, farming, and commerce, represented by the four colors, black, red, blue, and green, respectively. On your turn, you will get to take two actions with the choices of laying a tile, laying or moving a leader, playing a catastrophe tile, or sweeping your tiles. The most common actions you will do on a turn are laying a tile and laying or moving a leader. So on most of your turns, you'll simply either lay two tiles or lay a tile and a leader or lay two leaders and collect your points, refresh your tiles up to six, and your turn is over. That's it. Throughout the game, kingdoms on the board will grow, merge, war, and revolt. At the end of the game, when all the dust clears, the family who has advanced the people the most in all four categories will win the game. To determine a winner, each player will look at their four colors of cubes representing their points and counts how many cubes they have in the color that they have the least of. For example, at the end of the game, say I had 12 black cubes, 9 red cubes, 10 blue cubes, and 13 green cubes. My final score for the game would be simply 9. So, the player who develops these four categories, not only the most, but the most equally in all four colors, will be known throughout history as the greatest ruling dynasty of all time, and win the game. Part 2. The meat. How do you play the game? The first thing you need to know when you play this game is that in this game you're not a color. You're not blue or green. You're a symbol. Your choices are lion, donkey, vase, and bow. You will have one leader of each color. The leaders are the wooden discs with your symbol in the four different colors. So pick them up as I tell you about them. The first one is your black piece. The black piece is a king. I have a black crown. The blue piece is a farmer. Water my crops! The red piece is a priest. Praise the great god Ketchup! And the green piece is a trader. Limes for sale! And you will try to have these pieces on the board to score respective points from those leaders. The green piece will help you score the green cubes, the red piece will help you score the red cubes, etc. You have a screen. The screen is to hide how many points you have and the six tiles. You will have six tiles and you always refresh back to six at the end of every turn. The tiles will be black settlements, red temples, green markets, and blue farms. And purple horseshoes! No, no purple horseshoes. You also will be allowed to cause two catastrophes during the game. And so you get two of those catastrophe tiles to use sometime during the game. Those go in front of your screen so people know whether or not you've used them yet. As I mentioned in the hook, on your turn, you'll be doing two actions. For each action, you get four choices. Play a tile, move or play a leader, play a catastrophe, or sweep your tiles. Usually, like I said, you're either going to be dropping two tiles on the board or maybe one tile and one of your leaders, and that's it. That's your whole turn. So the turns move rather quickly. 
After your turn is done, you always draw back up to six tiles. So that's easy enough to understand. So why are you playing all this stuff? All right, you want to score points, which are the colored cubes. You can score points in three major ways. You get points for laying tiles on the board, having your leaders next to the right colored monuments, and winning conflicts between leaders. I'll go over each one in detail. But before getting into those things, I need to define the word kingdoms. In laying tiles, you'll be creating kingdoms. Anytime you have a group of tiles that are adjacent to each other, and there's at least one leader there, it is called a kingdom. Now, in this game, being adjacent means you have to be orthogonally adjacent. That means side to side or up and down. Being diagonal is never considered adjacent in this game. So you want to start a kingdom on your first turn. For your first action, you'll need a leader to make the kingdom. So say, for example, you put down your green trader. Limes for sale! You take that green trader and you put them next to one of those starting red temple tiles on the board. Leaders always need to be next to a temple. You can't put them down unless they are adjacent to a temple. And if that temple goes away, so does the leader. The leaders must have religious support, perhaps from the great god Ketchup. And that is why they must be connected to those temples. Remember that. It's very important. Then, for your second action on a turn, you might want to add a tile to that kingdom to score a point. Since I played a green trader, lines for sale, he scores me a point when I add a green market tile to the kingdom. So I take my green market tile from behind the screen, and I place it adjacent to any tile or leader in that kingdom, making the kingdom larger. And hooray! I score a green point, and that is my first turn. I get a green point because I laid a green tile in the kingdom, and I had the green leader in that kingdom. So that was my first turn. I laid the wooden leader, I laid the tile, I scored a point. That's it. I'll draw another tile to replace it, so I'll have six more tiles. Now, I could have done the same thing with the blue farmer if I laid a farm in that kingdom and scored a blue point, uh, or with the red leader, with temples, etc. Now, there's some finer rules about laying tiles, leaders, and scoring points. As I said, leaders must be placed adjacent to a temple. Leaders can't be put in rivers. Apparently, they cannot swim. The only thing that can be played in the river is blue farm tiles. Because remember, the farmer says, Water my crops! Two of the leaders have special abilities. The Black King leader, I have a black crowd, can score points of any color. For example, in my first example that I did earlier, say I laid the Black King instead of the Green Trader. I have a black crown, and I placed him on the board. And then I did the same thing. I took my green market tile and added it to that kingdom. I'm still allowed to get a green point because that's the special ability of the black king piece. Now if I wanted to play a black tile there, I could still get a black point instead. But I always only get one point per tile lay. So say I had the black king there and the green trader man, and I put the green market tile. I wouldn't get two green points because the king guy was there. I would only get one green point. Now, the green trader also has a special ability. Limes for sale. He collects treasures. 
When two treasures are connected, whoever has the green piece gets the treasure. Now what are treasures? The treasures are the natural colored pieces that start the board on the starting spaces. And when two of those starting temples get connected, if you have that green trader there, you get to pick up one of those. And those are going to help you at the end of the game because those count as a wild point. You can count them as black, blue, red, or green, and you don't have to decide what they are until the end of the game. So those can be very valuable. So that is the special ability of the green trader. Limes for sale! So laying tiles is one way to score points. If I have the red and blue piece on the board, I can just keep laying a red tile and a blue tile every turn, and I would get a red point and a blue point every single turn. So that's one way, but it's not very efficient. There's a quicker way to get points, and that is through being adjacent to monuments. That's what we're going to talk about next. You want to build a monument because they'll give you boatloads of points. How do you build a monument? You need to have a square of the same color of tile. For example, if I wanted to build a red monument because I had my red priest in a kingdom, praise the great god Ketchup, I would have to get four tiles in a square, a two by two square, somewhere in that kingdom. So temple, 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 temple. I have a square there. Now I can flip those over to make a red monument. When you flip them over, they have a little building space on them. And then you get to choose which of the monuments you would like. At the beginning of the game, there are six different monuments. If I built with red, I had a square of red tiles, I had to pick a red monument. Now there is the red and green monument, or the red and blue monument, or the red and black monument. I get to choose. If I had, say, the blue leader in that same kingdom, I'd want to pick the red and blue monument because that's going to give me extra points. Now, later in the game, someone might have already built the red and blue monument, so I just have to pick from what was available. Once a monument is built in this game, it stays there forever. It can never go away. So what does that monument do for you? If you have the red leader in that kingdom and you have a red monument in that kingdom, you're going to get to score one red point at the end of every turn that you stay in that kingdom. If you had the red and the blue leader, you would get a red and a blue point every single turn just for staying there. Now staying there can be trickier than you think, but we'll get to that later in conflicts. You could even have a red priest in a kingdom with two red monuments. Maybe this was a very large kingdom and you had a red and blue monument on one side and a red and green monument on the other side, but they're all connected. You would get two red points every turn. Now it's possible that you and one of your opponents is sharing this monument. For example, maybe you built this red monument and it was red and blue, but you didn't have a blue leader there. So the person on their next turn, they say, ooh, that looks like a very nice monument. And they take their blue farmer piece and they drop him in there and now they will be getting a piece from that monument. But you don't really mind because you're getting a piece too and everyone's happy for now. Now remember the king's special ability about it doesn't matter what tile you lay, you still get that colored point. This does not work for monuments. So if I had the black king in a kingdom with a red monument, he's not going to get me that point from the, from the monument. It only works for tile laying. Now if you look at the board, you'll immediately see that 
there's only one spot on the board with four river tiles that make a square. So that's the only place that you can build a monument with blue. Now there are those other monuments and say that square is taken, how you would build the other ones is maybe you know you build a monument with black and then you take the black and blue one. So don't worry, the other ones are still going to be able to be built. There's a few things to be aware of when you go after building a monument. You may build an L shape. You have three parts of the four needed to build that monument and pass the turn. Your turn will be over. You don't have any more actions. Now, a couple things could happen. One of the other players could, maybe they finish that monument for you. And you were building it with blue, and you were hoping for it to be blue and red, but they make it blue and green and put their green guy in there. So be aware, if you leave something like that, someone might come in there and finish it for you and make it a color that you particularly don't want. Now, other players could even sabotage your attempt to build a monument. Say you had that L shape of three red tiles, temple, 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 and there's one more spot you're hoping to build that last temple on your next turn, and you leave it there. Uh, particularly nasty player, maybe they drop in a green tile in there, thus spoiling that spot for being able to build a monument there. That is completely legal. Players can drop tiles anywhere on the board. They don't necessarily have to be connected to them. So just keep your eye out for that. Monuments are very strong. A big part of winning this game involves being in kingdoms with monuments as soon as possible. In fact, an ideal situation is having every one of your leaders in a kingdom with its respective color monument adjacent meaning you're scoring one point per turn of every color. Maybe you have one kingdom with a green and a black leader, and there's a green and black monument there. And somewhere else you have another kingdom with a blue and a red leader, and they're connected to a blue and a red temple. And you've got those kingdoms, and you're just collecting a point every single turn from red, blue, black, and green. That's huge. And at the same time, you could be laying tiles to score more points. If you're able to hold this position for a long period of time, you'll probably win the game. Now, it's important to remember to get your points at the end of the turn. Don't forget, and when you're first learning this game, try to help each other. When someone passes that tile bag, says they're done, ask them, did you get your monument points? And it's good just to clear up for people at the end of each turn. Just tell people, I scored one red, one blue, and one black point this turn. Just so people know before you put them behind your screen and they become hidden forever. So remember I said, if they hold that position. How do you stop it? Well, then it's time for a conflict. Conflicts are the third way to score points. Possibly giving you big chunks of points at a time, and more importantly, they're a great way to take control of another player's monuments and give you a better board position. So you have Clem Flapdoodle sitting across from you, and he's got this monster kingdom, and he's just getting points after points. It's time to start a conflict. When does a conflict happen? When there are two leaders of the same color in a kingdom. So Clem Flapdoodle is over there with his green trader piece just raking in tons of points because he's next to two monuments. What are we going to do about it? Alright, we're going to start a conflict. There are two ways that we can do that. We can try to start a revolution. And we do that simply by taking our green trader piece and dropping it right into that kingdom and say, I want to be leader of this now. Let's have a revolution. Or 
you could have your green trader piece in a kingdom over yonder and then connect it to Clem Flapdoodle's kingdom with tiles, thus having two green trader piece in the same kingdom, which will start a war. Knowing the difference in these two conflicts and how they work is one of the hardest parts to learn in this game, so I'll go over each in detail. So let's talk about a revolution again. So say you like Clem's kingdom and you want to take it over with a revolution. You just take that green piece and you drop it in. You place your leader of the same color in a legal space. A legal space is an empty space next to a temple and you'll see who wins. So remember, a revolution is when someone just drops in a leader on that kingdom that already has a leader of the same color. When you're starting a revolution, whoever is the most supported by the priests, hail the great god Ketchup, will win, which means you always fight it out with red tiles. It doesn't matter if you're fighting with green leaders, blue leaders, black leaders, you always, or red leaders. You always fight it out with red tiles in a revolution. You may want to set up a situation like this or look at a picture from the rule book showing an internal conflict, what I'm calling a revolution. When you are fighting a revolution, you count the adjacent temples and any temples I want to play from behind my screen. So I drop in my green trader. Say I drop it in in a position that's directly adjacent to two temples. I have a temple on either side of me. So my starting score is two. Say Clem's piece is only right next to one temple. So the starting scores are two to one. Now I have those six tiles behind my screen and I may have some temples there. I can play as many temples as I like to try to win. So say I play two more red temples. I add those to my other two, so now I have a score of four. Now Clem gets to go. Clem gets to play as many temples as he wants to try to beat me. When you're defending, you only have to tie what the person has put out against you. Let's say he has three red temples. He puts out those three red temples, the score is four to four. The defender wins. Now if I had more red temples, I don't get a chance to play anymore. I have to play all the ones I want to play right away. It's a one-shot deal. So I lost. Boo-hoo. Whoever is the loser in this fight, their piece gets kicked back off the board and the winner gets to keep their place and they will get one red point for successfully revolting or fighting off the revolt. One more revolution example to make sure you've got it. Kermit and Fozzie are playing against each other. Kermit decides to revolt in Fozzie's really nice kingdom. He's got a black king there and a monument next to it. So Kermit drops his black king piece next to a temple. Fozzie has his king piece next to one temple also, so the starting score is one to one. There may be other temples in the kingdom, but only the ones that are directly orthogonally adjacent count. Now Kermit was the attacker, he has to start. He plays three red temples from behind his screen. Fozzie looks at his tiles, he has one or two and says, oh, I'm going to lose. And so he says, I, I don't want to play any, you win. And he is allowed to do that. So, Kermit wins the battle, Fozzie's king is kicked off the board, Kermit gets one red piece. All the tiles that were played in the fight from behind the screens get out of the game. They do not go back in the bag, and the fight is over, Kermit wins. Hooray! 
So some basic strategy that comes from this is having your leaders next to more temples keeps you in a better defensive position against someone trying to do a revolution so that they can't just drop their piece in there and steal your spot. So getting yourself next to those two or maybe even three temples will uh, hold your position even better. Now let's get to wars. Wars are much messier affairs. They happen when someone lays a tile to connect two kingdoms and then those kingdoms have leaders of the same color. So we have two groups of tiles. Someone lays a tile to connect those and as long as there's no leaders of the same color in those two kingdoms we're alright. But say we've got a blue farmer in the one big group of tiles and a blue farmer in the other big group of tiles. Someone connects those, we have a war. And it could happen that there are more than one color at war. We could have a blue and green in one kingdom that's connected to another one that also has a blue and a green. So let's talk about what happens in that situation. But first, just remember that a war happens when kingdoms connect. Wars can get very messy and they can result in huge changes in points and board position. So first, when someone lays a tile that will result in a war, you look at it and you say, oh, there's a black king there and there's a black king there. We're going to have a war. So you take that special tile that has a picture of two hands shaking. We put it on the connecting tile. Now in a war, different than in a revolution, leaders fight with their respective colors. Blue's gonna fight with blue tiles, black's gonna fight with black tiles. Remember, in a revolution, we always fought with red. Determining your strength is a little different, but we play the tiles from our hands the same way. Your strength is how many tiles of your color that you have on your side of the kingdom. This is where it's important to look at that handshake and you look on either side. Here's an example of a war. Fozzie and Kerman are at it again. Fozzie has a black king and some tiles connected, and Kermit has a black king and some tiles connected. Fozzie plays a tile that connects these two kingdoms. Now, there are two leaders there, so we have a problem. We must have a war. We take the handshake tile, and we place it over on top of the connecting tile. Now, Fozzie connected, so he's considered the attacker. So he looks at his side of the board, his side of the kingdom, and sees that he has two black tiles on his side. And Kermit looks at his side of the kingdom that's about to be connected, and it has only one black tile. So that's the starting score, the number of tiles on your side of the kingdom. So the starting score is two to one. Then, just like in the revolution, players can play tiles from their hand. We're going to play with black this time. Fozzie's going to play four black tiles from out of his hand. So four plus two, he has a score of six. Now Kermit doesn't have that much. He only has one. But he plays the one anyway. Final score is six to two. And Fozzie wins. When you win a war, the loser's things blow up. So Kermit lost the war. His leader comes off the board, but also his black tile on that side of the kingdom comes off the board. The winner gets one point for each thing that came off the board. So since a black tile and a black leader came off the board, uh, Fozzie will get two black points. Let's say Fozzie won the war and Kermit had three black tiles and his leader there. All those things would explode, the three tiles and the leader 
would come back to Kermit off the board, the tiles would go out of the game, and Fozzie then would get four points. One, two, three for the tiles, and one for the leader. Now, as I said before, when you connect two huge kingdoms, it's very possible that you're going to have two or even three wars that could occur. So we might have one large kingdom with a black and a green leader, and another large kingdom with a black and a green leader, and they get connected. There's two wars there that could occur. Whoever connects the pieces there, they get the authority and the power to decide which will happen first. So they'll probably pick whatever benefits them most to happen first. So maybe they say, all right, we're going to black fight first. So then black will fight. Some pieces may explode. And so the kingdoms may or may not still be connected. If they are still connected, then you would have to fight that next war that would occur. If the two kingdoms are no longer connected, well, then you no longer have a problem. Now keep in mind, players are always allowed to play tiles wherever they want to. So if someone is particularly mischievous, they could take one of their tiles and connect two kingdoms that they don't even have leaders in, just to see what happens. You are allowed to start wars between other players, and it might be advantageous for you to do so. In the case that the connector is not involved with the fight, the person who is clockwise in turn order next is then considered the attacker, which is important because that is a disadvantage because they have to play tiles first and they lose ties. So those are the two different kinds of conflicts. Very briefly, here's what they are again. A revolution is a drop-in. You just take your leader, you put it in there, and you try to steal it. In this case, you always fight with adjacent red temples, and then you play with your red temples from your hand. Winner's going to get one red point and get to kick out the other leader. Wars. Wars are when we have kingdoms that connect together. You fight with whatever the color of the leader is. If it's green, you fight with green. If it's red, you fight with red. You get to start with whatever is on your side of the handshake, and then you add the tiles from behind your screen. And in wars, the tiles blow up from the loser, and those count as points for the winner. Now here's where it's significant to remember that at the end of every player's turn, every player refills up to six tiles, though it is at the end of the turn and not at the end of a battle. So if you are involved in multiple battles in a turn, you won't get to refresh your tiles in between them. However, if someone else attacks you, and then you get to refill, and then the next player's turn comes up and they get to attack you, then you'll always have six tiles at the start of each player's turn. So remember that. Okay, believe it or not, there are still two actions you can do on your turn that we haven't talked about. But to tell you the truth, they don't happen that often, and they're really not that complicated. So stick with me. The first one is catastrophes. Like I said, normally you're going to play tiles or play your wooden leader pieces. But every once in a while you will play a catastrophe tile or decide you want to sweep your tiles. So first let's talk about catastrophes. So you want to play a catastrophe. You take that catastrophe tile and you can play it on any square, empty or with a tile. You cannot play catastrophes on tiles that are holding a monument, a treasure, or a leader. Now if there's a tile there, it blows up that tile that is there. 
and now no tile may ever be laid again on that square for the rest of the game. So why would you want to do this? There are a lot of good reasons. Remember, leaders have to be next to temples. So if you blow up a temple supporting one or more leaders, you can get them off the board. You might want to drop a catastrophe to cut a kingdom into two parts, and that way you can sneak into a kingdom and get a monument without even having to fight. A lot of times you will lay a catastrophe tile with your first action to sort of clear out a nice kingdom, and then use your second action to take your leader tile and place it into that nice kingdom that just doesn't happen to have a leader there anymore. And then another use might be, you just might play a catastrophe tile to make it harder for people to get in and connect to your kingdoms to possibly start a war with you. Remember, you only get two of these during the whole game, so use them wisely. And the last thing you can do is sweep your tiles. If you don't like your tiles, you can take all of them, or usually you just take the ones you don't like, and you discard them from the game, and replace them with new ones from the bag as one of your actions. You might do this before a big fight, for example. Maybe you want to fight on temples, so you'll sweep all your non-temples and then as your second action, you know, drop in to have that big revolution. Or maybe you do this because you have all blue tiles and a ton of blue points and nothing that you want to do with blue tiles. Or you could do it simply to end the game, as one of the ending conditions of the game is that the tile bag is empty. So that brings us to the end of the game. Players will continue to take turns around the circle, taking two actions around, until one of the following things happen. The game ends immediately at the end of a turn where someone can't refill back up to six tiles, or there are two or less treasures on the board. And this will happen because a lot of the kingdoms have connected all over the board. Keep in mind it ends immediately, there's no equal turns in this game, so you're going to want to be aware of when the game is going to end and who has potential to end it. Okay, so that is Tigris and Euphrates. That may seem like a ton of rules, and it is a ton of rules, but if you back up and look at the big picture, there's really only 10 things you need to remember to play this game. I'm going to call this the 4-3-2-1 method of remembering how to play Tigris and Euphrates. Copyright Ryan Sturm, 2009. Okay, there are four things you can do on your turn. Lay a tile, lay or move a leader, lay a catastrophe, and swap your tiles. There are three ways to score points. By laying tiles in kingdoms, by having a leader in a kingdom next to the colored monument at the end of the turn, or by winning conflicts. There are two ways to have a conflict. You start a revolution within the kingdom by dropping your leader in and having a religious conflict with red tiles despite the color. And the winner always scores a red point. Or start a war between two different kingdoms by connecting them. In this case, they fight on whatever color they are. They get to use the tiles on their side of the battle and play tiles from their screen. The loser's things blow up and the winner scores points. And finally, the one object of this game is to score the most points the most evenly. The person with the most cubes in their weakest color will win the game. That's it. That's all you gotta know. So how am I know what I'm supposed to be doing? Well, that's what the hamster is for. Part 3. The Hamster. 
How do you win this game? Okay, so now this is where I tell you how to win this game. Here's where I have to be honest and tell you, I'm not really that good at this game. <laughs> this game has a very steep learning curve to get good at it, which I think is one of the reasons to learn it. I would say at playing this game 10 to 20 times, I'm a relative newbie to the strategy of this game, and maybe we can get some advice from some more experienced players. But I've probably played this game more than you, so let me tell you some basic strategy to get started, and what I've seen from people who are successful in this game. From my experience, the person who wins this game is the person who does these two things the best. You get your leaders solidly positioned next to monuments early in the game, and you set up a good defensible position so it's hard for someone to just jump in and take that spot or to steal the monument from you in, at a war. Or you win some major wars, either by attacking people and stealing the, these really great spots, or by having these spots very well defended, anticipating an attack, and being ready, and when someone attacks you, they utterly fail and, in the process, score you a bunch of points by doing that. So how do you do those things? Um, well, you want to get a monument up quick, you want to defend yourself with adjacent temples, you want to play tiles of the same color to prevent a war, you need to get monument points from two or three leaders, then get points from the other colors by trying to steal board position through a revolt or setting yourself up for a successful war, all the while protecting your current position and using your catastrophes cleverly. And don't forget to keep an eye out for jumping your leaders into those juicy spots when they become available. Now, how do you do all that when you just get two measly actions on your turn? Well, that is what is so beautiful about this game. You probably want to do three or four things on your turn, but you can only do just two. You have to choose carefully. Now, last piece of advice I will give you is don't just go jumping into a war. Before you connect kingdoms, please look at the full implications of connecting them. You may get so focused on winning the black versus black war that you forget there's a blue and a green connected there too that are going to have to fight each other. And you may forget that that person may have been storing up tiles to beat you. You really need to think about what are your chances of winning this war and what are the, all the possible results. Because winning and losing large wars can make you or break you in this game. I think this game can really be compared to chess for many reasons. The possible moves are easy to explain, but the strategy is incredibly deep. This game really rewards players who have played this game a great number of times. You have to play it enough to see how wars and revolutions play out a little bit. And you have to see how and why someone wins the game. Of course, the analogy to chess falls flat on a couple major levels, though. Uh, first, this is a much more tactical game. There's no way you can plan out 10, 5, 4, 3, sometimes even 2 moves in, in advance. It's, it's just impossible because that the board changes so much many times before it's your turn again. And second, of course, there's a lot of randomness and hidden information in the game due to your drawing of tiles. And at some points, you just have to make educated guesses of what tiles a person has. And unless you have a uh, 
super memory what kind of points the other players are going for. And both of these reasons are reasons why I'd much rather play this game than chess. It's a wonderful game and a game that I'm looking forward to exploring a lot more in the near future. I hope you enjoy exploring it as well. Part 4, Footnotes. So, the footnotes. In this game, this game has a lot of little, tiny, obscure rules that are easy to miss. And so I've taken all those little, tiny, obscure rules and I have put them in this section that I'm going to call the vegetables because they didn't quite fit with the meat. Because these rules are sort of generally more appropriate just to point out during the play of the first game. Now this collection of vegetables is, you know, eight very obscure rules that are kind of hard to find in the rule book, but they are quite important. So uh, if you are the one running this game, make sure you're familiar with these eight things. The first obscure thing to know about the rules of Tigris and Euphrates, first of all, the trader. Lines for sale. He collects treasures. Now when you collect treasures, there's those conflicts that happen. I didn't get it to talk to. If a conflict is going to happen and there's two treasures on the board, you have to do the conflict first because tiles could blow up and you don't get the treasures till after the conflict. So if tiles blow up and the treasures aren't connected anymore, well then you're just out of luck. The other strange rule about collecting the treasures is look at the four treasures that are furthest to the corners on the board there is a small rule that says if you have the choice to take one of those corners or another treasure you must take the one from the corner. The second most obscure thing to know about the rules of Tigris and Euphrates is another rule that comes up occasionally is you can't connect two kingdoms with a leader piece and this would be because sometimes that might start a war and that's just not allowed. So you can't take your blue farmer, connect two kingdoms, and then say there's a black king over there and a black king over there and we have a war and there's a leader in the middle. That is illegal. Now remember, a kingdom has to contain a leader. So if you have a kingdom and just a group of empty tiles, you are allowed to play a leader piece in between the kingdom and those tiles since that's not going to cause any problems. The third obscure thing to know about Tigris and Euphrates is is that it's possible to score points for other people. Remember I said you can lay a tile anywhere you want. If I play a black tile for some reason in another player's kingdom and they have their king there or you know any of the respective leader I, they, I scored them a point so they're gonna score a point for that so just be aware of that. The number four obscure important thing to know about Tigris and Euphrates is when you connect two kingdoms with a tile, you never get to score a point for that tile. Um, remember it gets covered with that handshake and so that's one of the reasons why you don't get a point. The other thing is that it's covered because that tile does not count towards the war. You look at either side of that tile. 
So let's say you're about getting ready to fight a black war and you want to connect uh, the two kingdoms to start that war. You probably wouldn't want to connect with the black tile. Maybe you'd want to connect with the green tile. And that way you can save the black tile in your hand to play during the war because that green tile is going to get covered with a handshake, will not score you a point, and it will not count in the war. The fifth obscure thing to remember about Tigris and Euphrates is that remember as an action you can lay a leader from off the board to put on the board or you can move a leader from the board into another position on the board. Many forget this or get confused thinking that maybe they have to take the leader off the board and then spend another action to put it on the board. But no, that's not true. You can always pick up a leader from a spot on the board and place it on any other legal square on the board as one of your actions. The sixth obscure thing to know about Tigris and Euphrates is if you're in a conflict and you have and, and you know you're crushing the other person. Let's say they they only have two and you have you have two extra temples that you could play. And you don't want those temples anymore. You can play as many or as few tiles in your hand. You're under no obligation to pay the exact amount to win or even to pay an amount to win. The seventh obscure thing to know about Tigris and Euphrates is when we have a red war, that is there's a, a red priest over here and a red priest over there and they get connected and then they say praise the great god Ketchup and there's a big ketchup war. So they have their war, they count the temples on one side and the temples on the other, they play their temples, and then remember, the pieces blow up in a war. Now temples don't quite blow up as good, and here's why. If a temple is supposed to blow up, and it has either a treasure on it, or it's connected to a leader, it's connected to any leader and it's gonna blow up, it doesn't blow up in that case. So sometimes when you have a red war, uh, less tiles get blown up for those reasons because a lot of times they're connected to other leaders. The eighth obscure thing to know about Tigris and Euphrates, I just learned this a few days ago, the tile distribution is not even. I always guess I just assumed it was other than maybe those 10 starting temples, but that's not true at all. There are a few extra red temples um, and the red temples are the most prevalent in the bag. If we look, there are 57 temples. So if you take the 10 out that start the game, there are 47 in the bag. And then there are 36 farms. So there's a few more of those blue farm pieces, which is why they always seem to be in the way. And then after that, there are 30 black and 30 green. So if you're wondering why you have a few more red or a few more blue, that's the reason why. And having those reds is, of course, important because of um, the possibilities of revolutions and just for getting those leaders on the board. Finally, I just have a, a tip for you on making gameplay move a little bit smoother. Each player on each turn will need the tile bag and the points. So, you know, there's not really a great container, at least in my edition. So what I do is I get a nice big cereal bowl. I dump all those points in that bowl. Um, and then I take the tile bag and put it right in that cereal bowl there. So we have this nice little package of gaming accessories. You've got your points and your tile bag there. And that can just travel around the table.
it'll also help because players will need to make change their uh, one point cubes for five point cubes and that way they can do it a little more secretly um, and it just keeps gameplay moving a little bit smoother oh phew uh, if you hear my voice starting to get hoarse uh, it's because I've been recording for about an hour and a half. There's just a, a lot of information to get in on this game, and you just really want to talk precisely when you're when you're teaching this game because there's a lot of uh, difficult vocabulary and subtle differences between the pieces. So that's about it. I, I hope that was really useful to you. Um, I enjoyed doing the podcast. Please, please, please join the guild. Uh, we are a elite, small but mighty group uh, and jovial group. We'd love to have more members. Please go on there, leave some feedback, tell me anything you thought about the episode, any comments from you. Uh, would really be appreciative and really motivates me to put out that next episode. Um, you know, the only payment I get for doing this is my own personal satisfaction and maybe a, a comment from a listener here and there. So please drop by and uh, drop me a little note. And again, if you like the podcast, I can use any help from you, my listeners, in promotion of the podcast. I still don't think uh, it's very well known that this is out there. There's only so many times I can... Um, spam the front page and tell them about my new podcast so please let your gamer friends know about it um, suggest it to people looking for help and rules on board game geek and just help spread the word about the how to play podcast i gotta admit this was a hard one you certainly challenged me with uh, getting across the rules for this in a uh, understandable and comprehensible way without any visuals uh, I'd really like to know whether you felt I was successful at doing that so um, get on that guild and, and start talking next episode I may take up Rob's suggestion of doing Halle Galley um, nine pages of script and uh, two hours of recording and I'm sure many hours of editing are to follow for this uh, this rather challenging game but like i said i did enjoy doing it i hope you really enjoyed listening to it speaking of future episodes um, go to the guild uh, go to the link that says future of the how to play podcast and let me know what you want to see next uh, i still haven't gotten my challenge met on getting 10 votes for one individual game and i will guarantee you i will do one of those shows so you know if you have nine friends you know, you can decide what the next episode is. I, I, I'm not going to make a comment here about you having more or less than nine. I'm sure you have a lot of friends. I'm sure you're, you're very well liked. Um, anyone who listens to the How to Play podcast obviously is someone of great taste, intellect, and can easily see... Uh, find things and so that probably draws uh, a lot of a lot of people to them they're obviously a very charismatic individual I, I'm trying to think if I have uh, nine friends um, maybe I'll make a list after I'm done recording here now on Facebook I have like I think I have like 37 friends but then I get made fun of that because you know most people on Facebook have like 457 friends because they just you know, friend everybody. I think I'm getting off topic. Let's end this right now. This is Ryan Sturm uh, for the How to Play podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you soon for episode number six. Mm -hmm.
for sale? <laughs>